You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. Today's podcast is the first in our eight-part mini-series introducing the 4R Network. It's an initiative aimed at bringing together multi-agency and multi-sectoral stakeholders, uh, focusing on delivering in-prison recidivism reduction programs and delivering post-release support for the re-entry and reintegration of terrorism-related offenders. And for today's po- podcast, the first in the series, I'm delighted to welcome Hunkal fernandez Gara Itabal, who is the program manager at the Counter Extremism Project and co-founder of Parallel Networks, a non-profit organization dedicated to combating polarization, hate and extremism. Hunkal has gained professional experience researching conflict, forced migration, organized crime and security. And her research has developed through collaboration in projects with institutions such as Georgetown University, Camillus, ICAID in Madrid, the Hague Centre for Strategic Studies and UNICEF. She also gained hands-on experience in peacebuilding while in Latin America and Africa, where she provided psychosocial support to internally displaced populations and other victims of extremism and violence in post-conflict settings. In today's episode, Hunkal will cover the rehabilitation and reintegration of extremism offenders in the United States and will explain the goal and objectives of the 4R network based on the understanding that rehabilitation and reintegration requires a whole of society approach. Hunkal, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Lucinda. And uh, thank you to, to CEP for this opportunity and, and all and everybody who's chiming in today to listen in. Great. Thank you. So you are really spearheading this new CEP initiative called the 4R Network. And I think uh, everybody listening will be interested to, maybe to just understand, uh, first, see the, the, the broad purpose um, of the, the program, why it was set, set up and what the specific goals and objectives are. Absolutely, yes. Uh, but in order to explain the, the 4R network, which actually stands for Radicalization, Reintegration, Reintegration, Rehabilitation and Recidivism Network, I may need to backtrack a little. So um, in 2019, uh, Counter Extremism Project published uh, Winterist Come Home, a report that, among other things, stated that um, to date, there exists no formal in-prison recidivism reduction program in the United States tailored specifically for convicted terrorists, nor um, a fully realized post-release initiative to support re-entry and reintegration of terrorism-related offenders in the country. So um, in 2020, uh, we set up Alternative Pathways, which is a DHS-funded uh, in-community re-entry and recidivism reduction initiative for extremist-related offenders in the United States in the United States, excuse me. It is indeed, it's a voluntary program and participants complete a 10 session workbook that, well, to make a long story short, addresses key risk and protective factors for radicalization in a manner that's accessible to individuals with different 
educational backgrounds and also um, culturally appropriate, of course, taking into consideration that the target population there, uh, on the one hand, jihadist offenders and mostly right-wing extremist offenders. And so through ongoing conversations uh, with uh, inmates and the completion of the workbook exercises, we are able to uh, better understand individual uh, radicalization trajectories and identify individual risk and protective factors that might hinder the reintegration process. And we can consequently um, elaborate an appropriate post-release plan that ensures a continuum of care from incarceration to resocialization back into the community. And so, despite all this, we did realize that there was very little coordination among different agencies to support in-community reintegration, especially when it came to incorporating civil society and in-community organizations in the reintegration process. So there, there was no ability to get an actual full picture of how the reintegration process was going and the rehabilitation process was going. And there was also very limited capacity to evaluate, unify or replicate promising practices and hence formulate, you know, evidence-based good practices for uh, rehabilitation and reintegration of extremist offenders in general. So we first answered the question, what is the overall goal regarding the reintegration and rehabilitation of extremist offenders? The answer was to facilitate a, a safe, healthy and dignified rehabilitation and reintegration of violent extremist affiliated criminal offenders, while also decreasing the likelihood of in-prison radicalization and increasing local resilience to violent extremism over the long term. So the next logical question seems to be, how do we actually do that, right? And that's where the 4R network comes into play. Mm-hmm. Um, among the things that the study of radicalization has taught us is that radicalization is not an individual phenomenon, but also that a social one in the sense that the environment also plays an important role, not just in shaping grievances, but also on how someone may go about resolving them. Hence, when speaking about rehabilitation and reintegration of extremist offenders, whether they've been convicted for terrorism-related offenses or whether they have a known affiliation to an extremist group, we cannot limit ourselves to the individuals that are coming home. Rather, we should also be very aware of the context into which they will reintegrate into. Um, This is true for all individuals coming home from incarceration, of course, but there's a particular focus for those coming home with, you know, the terrorist label attached to their name because of the additional difficulties that come about when speaking about rehabilitation and reintegration. But I just briefly described there's There weren't many structures in place to allow for this whole of society approach to rehabilitation and reintegration. So based um, on our findings from both the When Terrorists Come Home report and the early stages of the Alternative Pathways program, we realized that it was crucial to create a space where individuals involved in the rehabilitation and reintegration process could, one, share knowledge you know, particularly focusing on how different fields of expertise, whether it be security, mental health, social work, can contribute and be applied to rehabilitation and reintegration and what we can learn from each other to create consensus, not just when it comes to definitions, but also when it comes to monitoring and evaluating mechanisms and good practices. And three, share resources. And in that regard, I do have to say that members of the 4R network, people who sign up, will not just have the opportunity to attend a series of of 16 sessions that we will deliver through in-house experts at CP, but also other subject matter experts, as well as another 10 practitioner-oriented sessions that can, I think, will be very useful for for everybody. And so um, that is essentially the goal of the 4R network, right? To create an ecosystem of actors bound by common standards to facilitate a whole-of-society approach to extremist offender reintegration and recidivism reduction that ensures that every actor 
at any stage tasked with supervising extremist offenders in prison or in the community in the United States has adequate knowledge and access to evidence-based support for reintegration. And I mentioned the U.S. In particular, in particular because that is where we CP is based in New York and because the project is funded by the U.S. government, the Department of Homeland Security. But um, I do want to highlight that one, I'm sure that anybody from any country will be able to benefit from these trainings and workshops that we will be delivering. And two, that for sure their input will be, of course, tremendously valuable to us since it will allow uh, all of us in the United States to benefit from other practices and initiatives that may be working in, in other contexts. And this knowledge sharing is, of course, becoming increasingly necessary, seeing how the extremist landscape and hence extremist convictions have changed in the last years, particularly in, in the United States. That's a brilliant overview, both of the context in which um, the, this was the concept has arisen and and also just, I think, for our listeners to better understand what exactly the, the 4 or network is and how it will work and uh, what the benefits will be. And I think um, it's clear that it will be beneficial to, to, to practitioners outside of the United States as well. So that's a, that's an open invitation, I guess. Um, yes, for, absolutely. For, 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 yeah. So uh, maybe just to get a bit of context uh, in terms terms of what you're dealing with in the US in terms of the prison population. I think that's a, a point of interest, you know. So who are the people in the prison population? What ideological backgrounds and movements are we talking about uh, when we speak of extremist offenders? And, you know, how has the how has the situation evolved over over the last, we'll say, since since 9-11, the, the most significant and memorable uh, terror attack in US history? Of course. But I'd like to start by distinguishing between terrorism convictions and extremist yeah. offenders, because I think that sometimes people equate the two and it's not completely accurate. Let me begin with, with terrorism convictions. And then for that, I'm actually going to backtrack not to 9-11, but to 1995 and the Oklahoma City bombings. Sure. Why? Well, because despite all the attention that 9-11 and international terrorism has rightfully received in the in the past years, between 1996 and 2021, there have been a total of 2,348 prosecutions in the United States related to domestic terrorism and 1,336 international terrorism prosecutions. And granted, prosecutions do not always result in incarceration, but let me give some numbers. So after 9-11, in 2002, there were a total of 355 individuals convicted for international terrorism and a total of uh, 162 domestic terrorism prosecutions. Yet, in a matter of four years, that is in 2006, there were 104 individuals prosecuted for domestic terrorism and merely 41 individuals convicted for international terrorism. So, in other words, the number of domestic terrorism prosecutions in 2006 were two and a half times higher than those prosecuted for international terrorism. However, I do want to highlight also regarding your question of the ideological background of extremists. Um, well, when we speak about international terrorism, it is mostly Salafi jihadism. When we speak about domestic terrorism, we cannot assume that we're just talking about right-wing extremism. Um, under U.S. law, terrorism is defined as the commission of an act dangerous to human life that is 
a violation of state or national criminal laws if the act appears uh, to be intended to, one, intimidate or coerce civilian population, two, influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion, or three, to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination or kidnapping. And leaving aside the difficulty in proving intent, which I believe is an important conversation to have, but a different one than the one we're having now, uh, this definition could include, for example, the Vieques Island protests, when many people included several prominent Americans illegally entered a military base and tried to obstruct the bombing exercises. Because protesters unlawfully entered the airbase with the purpose of influencing government policy by intimidation or coercion and could have arguably endangered the lives of those working at the military base, these actions could fall under the definition of domestic terrorism too. All this to say that when we're speaking about extremist defenders incarcerated for international terrorism, it is pretty straightforward to speak about an ideological background, a straight one, meaning the Salafi jihadis. We cannot say the same about those convicted for domestic terrorism, where, you know, the the ideological background may differ uh, case by case. And here's where extremist defenders come in, because there are also individuals with known affiliation to an extremist group with a very specific ideological background that are incarcerated, but not for terrorism offences. I can give a couple of examples. For example, the um, Atomwaffen members that were convicted for swatting a historically black church, or members of the base who were arrested for conspiring to murder high-ranking members of Antifa as retaliation for doxing. So again, these people were convicted and sentenced, but were not charged with terrorism offences, yet they do have the extremist mindset. But with regards to programming, that didn't have much of an implication, let me explain. So the the average age was still low. In fact, in the past, uh, the FBI has expressed their concerns that the average age of the terrorist inmate population was getting younger and the average prison sentence shorter and how this could affect recidivism. They were mostly male offenders and they all fell under the quote-unquote um, terrorist label. So you may not have been convicted for terrorism-related offences, but in this day and age, all of us are basically one Google search away. And it's not very difficult to figure out whether someone was affiliated to a certain group, whether it be Al-Qaeda, ISIS, or Atomwaffen, and the societal stigma associated to that is sort of similar. Now, after January 6th, I do see somewhat of a change that might have severe implications when speaking about rehabilitation, reintegration, and recidivism. Among, you know, those, uh, the defendants for January 6th, the average age is 40 and sentences are still relatively low with the exception of of the Oath Keepers, which are facing 20 years. Almost 13% of them have some form of military training. And while only 8% of them had an affiliation to some sort of extremist group, 33% of them did not have a formal affiliation to any extremist groups. And their network were mostly comprised of like-minded individuals in their immediate environments, such as friends and family. So this, to me, presents a change in the threat posed, since um, it is the immediate environment, as I say, friends and family, that usually provide most support when people return home after incarceration. And they could actually be good allies in working towards rehabilitation and reintegration. However, when that immediate environment can not only reinforce your worldview, chances that you know, chances of recidivism can increase, especially in a context like the one we're living in now, especially in the United States, where things, you know, the, the social political environment is becoming increasingly polarized and people are becoming increasingly visceral. Mm-hmm. So I suppose uh, you've talked you've talked a lot about recidivism and there 
interesting, really interesting points in relation to the family networks and so on. How do you, or is it possible to uh, define success when it comes to recidivism? How do you gauge what success looks like? That is that is actually a pretty tricky question. Um, and I think rather than, you know, defi- first of all, defining recidivism, I think that we should maybe focus on what we believe to be successful reintegration or what successful reintegration could look like. So if we understand reintegration as a safe transition to the community by which the individual can proceed to live a law abiding life, following his or her release and they acquire attitudes and behaviors that lead to productive functioning in society, then, you know, we can speak about preventing, um, preventing recidivism. As, as I'm saying, it's not, um, just important to define what successful reintegration could or should look like, but what it means to be a productive member of society. And then we can start talking about success because when we uh, define somebody as, uh, or or, or we get those standards for being a productive member of society, we also, you know, when the person becomes a productive member of society and can reintegrate properly, it decreases societal stigma. It promotes a feeling of belonging, which in the case of extremist offenders is, is key. And it also provides, you know, some positive feedback effect on individuals who are often struggling, not just with the effects of incarceration, but also with the shame and guilt um, associated to the terrorist label. And usually when we're speaking about recidivism and and re- the, the idea is, well, are we are we only talking about reengaging in, in terrorism or should we include all, all crimes into all of this? Um, again, that goes back to what we understand as successful reintegration, uh, because, you know, there are several attitudes that can prevent somebody from being a productive member in society, whether it's engaging in other forms of criminality, I don't know, counterfeiting. Uh, domestic violence, which is also a crime, but a, a different form of crime, or maybe developing maladaptive coping mechanisms such as, you know, substance abuse. Do they all require the intervention in law enforcement and and therefore are they strictly recidivism? No. But do they lead to the individual being a productive member of society? Also no. So it's it's quite a challenging matter, to be honest. Mm, it really is. Um you connected to um, your work in alternative pathways. Um, you re- you released a theory of change, um, mm-hmm. which looks at applying a, a trauma informed approach to reintegration and rehabilitation in the US. Could you maybe elaborate on that narrative of the theory of change and what the purpose is? Most absolutely. Thank you for that question. Um, so indeed, we published a theory of change when when we officially launched the network on, on November 16th. And we elaborated this um, theory of change, as I was saying earlier, based on the report of Winter Has Come Home and also from the early findings from um, our Alternative Pathways program and actually taking into consideration Practices, good practices that work for the rehabilitation and reintegration of, of the inmate population in, in general. And so we decided to actually change the approach when speaking about the rehabilitation and reintegration of extremist offenders, meaning um, we went from the traditional what's wrong with you to asking a question of what actually, what happened to you? Why are you in the situation that you're in? And so 
we moved away from the traditional de-radicalization-oriented paradigms that focus on the ideology as a primary factor for radicalization and actually underestimate the broader social and contextual circumstances. And we applied this, uh, what you mentioned, a trauma-informed paradigm that understands health in a more holistic manner and provides a principle-based lens that expands to include structural as well as inter and intrapersonal factors to meet the different degrees of agency, role, commitment, drivers of radicalization, and and other variables. When speaking about, you know, a trauma-informed approach applied to preventing and countering violent extremism is what we call the trauma and countering violent extremism-informed care. I do have to highlight that it's not trauma treatment. We're not speaking about trauma treatment. Uh, There's probably be only small percentage of uh, extremist offender population that will need specific trauma treatment delivered by professional by professionals excuse me and it doesn't suggest either that there's a monocausal link between trauma and radicalization neither does it suggest that trauma is always present as a driver of, of radicalization to violent extremism in, in every case it doesn't suggest that all forms of extremists, uh, sorry, all extremists suffer from diagnosable trauma. And of course, it does not remove the role of individual agency. Rather, what we're trying to do with this approach is to integrate and understand past and current experiences of violence and trauma into all aspects of service delivery. If one actually delves into the theory of change a little bit more with all the objectives that are outlined um going from you know being able to provide medical uh, physical mental and spiritual health to being able to develop social economic capital fostering healthy family relationships every aspect of the way integrates that under those experiences of violence and trauma in, in at every stage along the way and uh, we focus on the nexus between mental health and radicalization to violence uh, to suggest that understanding how and why that is the case. So how mental health and radicalization to violence connect in the different cases. It opens the arena for disengagement and de-radicalization oriented interventions to benefit from that, from those perspectives. Again, not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. And it is through that question that we are able to t- weed out the risk and protective factors that I was talking about earlier. Again, this trauma encountering violence extremism informed care would argue that those who suffer from complex trauma or PTSD are at a higher risk of accepting extremist or, or prejudicial narratives, which of course could have negative effects when speaking about uh, successful reintegration and rehabilitation. And, um, We would argue again that engagement in extremist ideologies or movements, particularly when the outcome is incarceration, is traumatizing. Again, here, the role of trauma moving forward and how it can hamper the success of any rehabilitation and reintegration program or intervention. Uh, But all in all, what it seeks to understand is why people were radicalized, looking at the trauma associated with the drivers of radicalization, as well as the subsequent experiences um, in, you know, arenas of conflict and how all of that can play a role going forward when speaking about rehabilitation and reintegration. And it allows to, um, as I say, prevent recidivism insofar that at least people can um, cope with the circumstances, cope with the effects of incarceration insofar that engaging in an extremist group ended, resulted in their incarceration, cope enough that they can indeed live a productive life as, as productive members of society.
Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like a a rather logical approach. Um, uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that filters out in time. Just a follow up question, and it goes back, I suppose, to I guess the the the, the driving force behind the four or network, um, it, the lack of formal in prison recidivism reduction programs in the US and likewise um, the post-release um, elements to that. Are there countries that um, stand out to you um, that are you know, really pioneering in the, in the field of prison rehabilitation and supporting re-entry and reintegration? Uh, you know, are, are, there, are there concrete examples that are in place that um, can be pointed to as example for the US and for other jurisdictions? Well, if you ask me, I believe the United States is a particular difficult context to reintegrate back into. I mean, something as simple as background checks that are required for absolutely everything from getting a job at a supermarket or renting an apartment. So that makes reintegration and rehabilitation of offenders in general and extremist offenders in particular very, very difficult. And if we were to look at data on recidivism rates, for example, Ireland and Sri Lanka would be two good examples, meaning only 2.2% of IRA fighters were reconvicted for terrorism and fewer than 1% of Tamil Tigers reoffended. However, um, there is the theory that is it because you know, whatever was in place was successful or is it because their groups had dismantled and disappeared and therefore they had nothing to re-engage back uh, with. But when it comes to promising practices, I think Germany is doing a pretty good job with their DRAD nets because they are trying to bridge that they're trying to build a bridge between security agencies and in community organizations, which I think is is pretty promising. And I do have to say, I'm very excited for uh, for that episode. But uh, CP Sophia Kohler and uh, Dr. Jorgos Sotiriadis from the Berlin Senate of Interior and also responsible for the DRATnet will be talking about this uh, German approach in particular in, in one of our episodes uh, for this mini series. So mm-hmm. you can you could they can tell you. A bit more about that. Great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah. Before we conclude, I will ask you about just to maybe preview some of the other. Oh, content absolutely. I will. <laughs> <laughs> I know you will. Um, no, that's that's fantastic. Thank you. And and interesting to hear the recidivism rates um, in some other jurisdiction when it comes to terrorist def- offenders. Um, um, just maybe a, a, a final a final question um, to to round up our discussion. In your opinion. How do we make sure that extremist offenders emerge from prison um, rehabilitated insofar as it is possible and prepared for reintegration? What are the what are the elements uh, in an ideal world that 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 would be on view in 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 a in a prison system in any in any jurisdiction? Well, you hit it on the head, right? In an ideal world, uh, because I really don't think there, there's a magic formula, to be honest. Sure. Um, especially when it comes to you know. Let's define rehabilitation again with with definitions, right? Like we can define rehabilitation as a planned intervention that aims to change characteristics of the offender, attitudes, cognitive skills and processes, uh, personality or mental health, social, educational, vocational skills that are believed to be the cause of the of that criminal behavior. With the and the intention is to, of course, reduce the chance that the individual will reoffend. But most of these are actually a long-term process that's for example mental health right that's not something that 
can be ensured, not just uh, not to say, for example, that they don't have mental health providers in prison, for example, but as I was saying earlier, the experience of incarceration is in and of itself traumatizing and the release back into the community can, of course, add further uh, to the pile of, of trauma that people are, are already carrying with them. And then characteristics like social, educational and vocational skills can be developed, right, in prison. They, there are programs for that, but they can be negatively affected by resocialization. I mean, if one, for example, does take a vocational um, skill course in prison or an employment course or how to write your CV and you're unable to find employment or you're unable to access a school or, you know, talking about social skills, you suffer from social isolation at the point of returning back into the community. Any work that you have done will probably you know, you've probably gone step, 10 steps ahead and you can easily walk back 15 steps without even realising. That's why we connected Alternative Pathways and the 4R Network in so far that ideally we should be able, while people are incarcerated, to start providing, the, first identify the risk and protective factors, you know, that I was talking about earlier and put mechanisms, mechanisms in place that will reinforce those protective factors. And they should be started while the individual is incarcerated and then follow up, you know, once the individual is released back into the community. That continuum of care, I think, is key when speaking about rehabilitation and reintegration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Finally, as promised, um, I would like to ask you to uh, give our listeners a preview of uh, what they can expect to hear uh, throughout the rest of the series. I know we have some really, uh, you've mentioned Sophia and others um, who will be joining. Uh, We have some really interesting guests um, who will feature on this podcast series. So maybe give us a little sneak peek and uh, um, a a sense of what's to come uh, in this in this podcast series. I'll be more than happy to. Um, so, uh, as I say, I already mentioned Sophia Kohler and Dr. Yorgos Sotiriadis, but for example, we will also have Professor Ian Aikson speaking about, uh, you know, he will pull from his experience and expertise in, in violent extremism in UK correctional settings uh, to deliver, and he will speak about monitoring in correctional settings and the importance of what I just spoke about, you know, connecting in-prison programming to post-release care, Silver will discuss concerns faced by law enforcement when speaking about rehabilitation and reintegration of extremist offenders and how partnerships with civil society could help mitigate associated risks. Um, Two great subject matter experts, Dr. Sofia Moskalenko and Dr. uh, Mia Bloom, will speak about how this context of increasing social political polarization and conspiracy theories and missing disinformation can affect rehabilitation and reintegration of extremist offenders. Our partner for this, for our uh, network initiative, Beyond Conflict, they will also uh, feature in an episode where they'll speak about that connection between unresolved trauma and the perpetuation of violence and how the failure to address mental health and psychosocial support needs of extremist offenders may hamper rehabilitation and reintegration. Um, my dear colleague, my dear and very esteemed colleagues, Noah Tucker and Mike Nickenchuk, they will um, actually come in uh, to provide insights from their experiences in Central Asia to discuss how successful in community rehabil- reintegration and rehabilitation practices um, 
for uh, children and adult uh, women have taken place in countries like uh, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, and they will also explore the importance of inculcating culturally, culturally relevant and appropriate methods of care to ensure long-term well-being. And one of my personal favorites, I do have to say that, for the last episodes of this series, uh, two former extremists, a, a, a former right-wing extremist and a former Al-Qaeda affiliate, will tell their own stories of um, incarceration and release back into the community. And I think that one's going to be very, very interesting for, for all listeners. Absolutely fabulous. I'm really looking forward to um, to all of these conversations and I'm very privileged to have the opportunity to uh, to sit down and, and talk with all of the aforementioned. So I think it's going to be really worth listening to and uh, hopefully our listeners will be as interested and excited about it as we are. So um and of course, just to to reiterate that anybody, uh, any practitioners, academics, anybody um, involved in the in the broad field will be welcome to sign up and participate in the trainings that will be available through the four or network. So um, I think it's important to say that um, if 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 there is interest, um, irrespective of where uh, people may be ge- geographically based, um, they have the opportunity to participate in in this really exciting program. So with that, uh, Hunkal, I want to really thank you for giving a great overview, uh, lots you. of detail in terms of, of your experience and um, the, the reasons behind the establishment of uh, 4OR and uh, and what's in store through this um, initiative. I think it's going to be really fascinating and hopefully, uh, and most importantly, um, very fruitful and effective for those who are working in the rehabilitation, reintegration space. Um, So thank you very much for setting the scene on this episode today. And uh, I look forward to seeing how it all evolves in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you so much, Lucinda. Thank you for the opportunity today. And thank you for letting us, you know, speak more about our work. And I hope everybody, you know, not just joins the network, but I hope they see the, the use in all of this, because going forward, I think it's something that will be very, very necessary. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you once again. And uh, talk to you soon. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website. 